Well, if you're surprised that I'm wearing red, so am I. Um, I only learned about five minutes ago, that, maybe ten minutes ago, that I knew that we had a special day today. I didn't know I was supposed to wear red. Let's try to keep this short, but explain it. There are seven days in the United States liturgical calendar that if they fall on a Sunday, take precedence over ordinary time. This is actually the third one of these we've had this year. There's only seven of them, but five of them fall in the year 2014. We had the presentation of the Lord, Groundhog Day, February 2nd, St. Peter's and Paul. Today is the feast of the exaltation of the cross. I have a hard time saying that word as a priest, exaltation, because we also have another word, exaltation. What's the difference? Exalt is to lift up, to raise in rank. For you grammar fans, it's a transitive verb. Exalt means to rejoice. That is intransitive. Ask somebody else what that means. Technically, this feast is about the celebration of the dedication of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the Holy Land and the fact that when they were excavating the the land there to build this over a, a temple that had been built in the second century to Aphrodite, they supposedly discovered three wooden crosses, including what they believed to be the true cross that Jesus Christ was crucified on. So St. Helena was the one who was there and, and sort of discovered this. But that is not the main exaltation of our exaltation today. Yeah, I set that one up. Our gospel today, Jesus says to Nicodemus, the son of man must be lifted up as the bronze serpent was lifted in the desert long before. You don't remember that story? Don't worry, it's the first reading. But like many feasts, the key to understanding, the main point can be found in our second reading. This is perhaps the oldest passage in the New Testament. Paul is quoting a hymn that the Philippians were already singing before he came there. Let us empty ourselves so that we may be filled up with God's mercy. Our first reading from the book of Numbers is quite disturbing. The people complain about the food, so God sends serpents to bite and kill them. The people repent, so Moses strikes up a deal with God that if the people look at a serpent on a bronze pole that's been exalted, they'll be cured. Wouldn't it have been easier to just get rid of the serpents? Why does suffering exist? It is a mystery. Mystery is sometimes I say it's the red button we push on the wall, sort of like Staples has the easy button. We hit mystery, we say we don't know, it's a mystery, but it's not a Scooby-Doo mystery. It's something beyond human comprehension. I obviously cannot answer the question completely. But I would say this. Most suffering in the world is not caused by God. It is caused by the nature of sin. But for those who believe in God, suffering can be an opportunity for becoming redemptive. Now that's hard to accept. We want to believe that if we are devout, God will in turn make our lives easy, smooth, and simple. But that's not how it works. Christians don't have necessarily easier lives than other people. But we believe that God can use our sufferings as channels so that we and others can receive God's overpowering love. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In Jesus' time, children guaranteed a family's flourishing. Children were needed, many children in a family, to tend to the farming and the chores, to care for parent, aging parents. There was no health care system. Children, when they grew up and got married, helped connect the family to the larger community. Children were important then. But today, as we have fewer children and we invest more and more of our hopes and dreams in them, perhaps we even better understand what it would mean to sacrifice one's only child. God suffered for our sake, giving his only son for our redemption. But our letter to the Philippians makes it clear that this intense love is not a one-way street. Jesus Christ, the Creator's only Son, loved God so much that He emptied Himself and became like us in all things but sin. Many, many Christians have meditated on this idea of emptying. Christians must empty ourselves like Jesus. We empty ourselves of our personal desires in order to attend to the needs of others. Now to be clear, We are not called to be doormats, to let other people take advantage of us. Jesus endured his passion and death because it would lead to the salvation of the world. John of the Cross, Apollo's patron saint, gave his most famous meditation on this idea. It's a poem called The Dark Night of the Soul. And the dominant analogy in that poem is that It's about a person leaving their house in the dark of night, finding her way to her lover, not by light, but by overpowering love. When we empty ourselves of our desires, it's then that we can follow the desires of God. And we may discover that those desires of God are probably purer, deeper versions of the desires that we felt from the start. I don't think everybody knows Spanish, even though lots of people in the second row here do. Um, And my Spanish pronunciation isn't so great when I don't have them coach me first. So I'll give you four stanzas translated into English. One dark night, fired with love's urgent longings. Ah, the sheer grace. I went out unseen, my house being now all stilled. On that glad night, in secret, for no one saw me, nor did I look at anything, with no other light or guide than the one that burned in my heart. This guided me more surely than the light of noon, to where he was awaiting me, him I knew so well, there in a place where no one appeared. I abandoned and forgot myself, laying my face on my beloved All things ceased. I went out from myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. How do we go out from ourselves, leaving our cares forgotten among the lilies? The political scientist Robert Putnam wrote a book four years ago called Amazing Grace. And his research indicates that the best predictor 
of who in our society will be self-giving, giving of oneself to others, be it giving to charity, donating blood, sitting with friends who are going through a time of depression, helping others find jobs. The best predictor is not a person's level of income. It is not someone's age or gender or race or level of education. The best predictor for who in our society will empty themselves for the sake of others is how often you attend religious services. Why is that? Perhaps because in this world of ours, which is becoming so individualistic, trending towards atheism, libertarianism, and fewer family connections, religion is the one institution remaining that promotes the care of others. And so we return to where this feast day began, with St. Helena. Helena was a concubine of a Roman nobleman. And as he became more and more prominent in the government, he dismissed her. She suffered in obscurity for quite a while, emptying herself to the two passions of her life, her Christian faith and her only son. Her son's name was Constantine. And eventually, he became the emperor and exalted Christianity, guaranteeing its preservation through the centuries. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's only son loved the father so much that he emptied himself and became a slave. May we empty ourselves so that we may be filled with God's sanctifying grace.